And so we might say this is an experience of the void. You're listening to the Digital Void Podcast, where we work to make sense of the borderlands of digital media, culture, politics, and memes. My name is Josh Chapdelaine, and my co-host is memeticist Dr. Jamie Cohen. Today, cultural theorist, cyber psychologist, and marketing strategist Matt Klein discusses the most frequently reported cultural trends for 2021, explores how the Momfluencer aesthetic is being used as a gateway to QAnon and other widely believed conspiracies, and calls for a Rosetta Stone for Generation Z to help different generations understand the emotionally affective features of memes. There's such referential exercise, if if that even makes sense going on where you almost get lost. And for anyone on the outside, I mean, with culture moving so uh, rapidly, I mean, once you're off, like, I mean, you're off, like there's no way for you to catch back up. It's very, very, very difficult. In, in my take, at least from my perspective, we're reaching this precipice of if you're not on board, you're, you're completely lost. Before we begin, make sure to subscribe and leave a review to Digital Void on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform now. Thank you so much for being here, Matt Klein. Thank you for being here because your work so much intersects with our work that it's really, really an honor to have you because what you do and what Josh and I talk about quite often is you're doing the work of the translation of the content of of digital media, digital cultures, and giving it to the public. But I think your work is extremely meaningful because you're writing in a way that helps people understand the bigger pictures that are attached to some of these more esoteric type of things. So thank you so much for being here because we want to talk to you about some of your most recent projects. It really means a lot. It really does. Thank you. First thing I want to talk about is your Meta Trends report, because I think that's a really good place for us to start. Most specifically, not, not just because it's it's actually really great data and great analysis, but what you've done is compiled like, well, you did a lot of work. It's a lot. It really is a lot. I mean, it's just way to put it. <laughs> yeah. You went through a lot of these reports. And so, so, so I don't take away from how important this Meta Trends report is. Could you please explain it? Absolutely. So I come from from a strategic comms or marketing background. And every single year, tons of consultancies and agencies put out trend reports. And the purpose of these trend reports are to position themselves strategically to say, hey, we're watching culture. We're on the front lines. We know what's bubbling beneath the surface. So if you check out what we're watching and align yourselves with us, then perhaps you and your brands can succeed. So fast forward, what happens every single year is that we have 30 plus trend reports that come out. And many of them are covering the same things. And there's a bit of an arms race to capture the eyes, eyeballs, if you will. So I do the service of reading every single trend report, which ranges from 50 to 300 pages. So multiply that by 30 reports. It, it takes quite some time, but I read every single report in order to develop the meta trends report. In other words, what are the trending trends or what are the things in which all of these consultancies or agencies or PR firms watching and, and connecting the dots between them and further analyzing this from a much higher level. So rather than focusing on just a single trend that they're noticing, what's the pattern uh, beneath all of them? So that's first, I like the idea of this is like where, because our, our big focus is meta text as well. And I, one of the things I like about meta trends or meta in general is they're the things that go unwritten. And I think the service you're doing by, by an analyst these various ones is that there's things that are left unsaid. And in, in the quantization and explanation of a lot of the way that the world works, it's kind of easy to create reductionism into one thing. But then in between those lines, you were able to pull out these very specific events that are happening. And pandemic aside, you were noticing some, some
some things that were, I think, more feelings than are, are like able to be quantized. So I just want to go over just to a couple of them. So keyboard space. When you talk about that, what does it mean when you say that the online areas strip intimacy yet add complexity? I like that terminology. So in previous years, meta reports have been tracking this much larger trend of our online identities um, blurring with our physical identities, if you will, right? There was a bit of a blur that was happening. I called it uh, zeros and ones fusing. And as we've witnessed with the pandemic, a lot of these trends actually are just accelerated. It's just amplifying what's already been in existence. And I found that keyboard space is just the um, acceleration of that previous one of blurring identities online and offline. And keyboard space essentially just acknowledges that now that we've essentially transferred so much of our living and, and identity online, we now need a place for them to exist. And when we think about how that manifests, that's either most superficially Zoom parties, or that could be gaming, or that could be in-game concerts, that could be virtual malls, that could be virtual marketplaces more specifically. So there's many, many different iterations of what a space looks like. But in any case, the idea of the fact that our identities are now kind of merged online, there needs to be a place for them to exist and to thrive. And while we live so much online, that space is stripping intimacy in that we no longer have eye-to-eye contact. We're no longer in the same room. We're no longer touching each other. We're no longer having the same micro-expression mirror neurons going on. But also at the same time, it's adding complexity. So as it strips it, we're now also having new features or superpowers that we never had offline. Whether that be emotes or whether that be online tipping or whether that be experimentation with our setting or Zoom background or the way in which we appear online. So it's both dialing things down while also dialing things up. Yeah. So what, what you brought up is, a, is something that I think about quite often is the body in using these spaces. So not just the eye contact. So the eye contact thing is kind of interesting in general. And I think Deloitte mentioned this in one of them, which is like how young Gen Zers have a bit of a difficulty actually making eye contact sometimes, you know, and it's it's a way of communication that's just slightly different or disengaged, but it's really they're just a different method. It's not different in communication. But when we use Zoom and everybody knows this, but nobody thinks about it too hard is that we never really make eye contact. We're looking at somebody's face, but the camera is never behind their face. So it's always like slightly off center. So we always have this like disembodied experience, but we kind of have negotiated like, well, that's just what it is. You know, we've, this is, we're making eye contact, so to speak. But then what you've, what you mentioned is like, I've talked to so many people at this point who are just like, well, Zoom is just as good as meeting in real life now. And I'm like, well, yeah, kind of, because it's like, if you're still communicating and you're still good at it, you've just replaced that environment, but it's your body is sitting still, but now your mind has migrated into the digital space while you're sitting still. So it's like a very much the ultimate black mirror type of thing. And your next three are kind of interesting because it continues from previous trends, which is like mindfulness, soft activism. Like, can you talk to me about like, why why is that still what's going on with that? Like that we're still seeking like the inner part of our own brain outside of the computer too. Yeah. So one one little step backwards, I think I think a nice transition is that when we think about the ways in which we're using Zoom, not only are we not making eye contact, but we're also viewing ourselves in that. And there's a bit of a tension between that selfishness oh, yeah. and this other trend, which I'm calling tranquil web, which is as we spend more time online, as we develop new spaces in which we're living online, there's this new sense of co-ownership or civil technology or this idea of the, the economics of sharing or altruism that's existing. And that's happening in really, really, really strange ways, whether that be as, again, we could use a superficial top of mind example, such as 
TikTok duets, like that in itself is co-creating media or entertainment with complete strangers online. Another manifestation could be uh, robot pets, which is a little cliche, but it's this idea of spending time with, with the virtual creatures or spending time with physical robots offline, which is kind of blurring the way in which we're seeing ourselves and blur, uh, and seeing others, which I guess takes us into the, the next one, which is this idea of soft activism. Um, I think we'd be mistaken not to kind of highlight what's happened over the summer. And when we look at social justice or injustices, if you will, there's this idea of community that's forming and a lot of that community is forming online for both better and, and worse, if you will. So we're seeing the, the Instagram justice slideshows, which is the changing the ways in which we're seeing each other. But it's also changing kind of the pressures or the conformity to step up or to engage, whether or not that's slacktivism or not. So I know we're kind of running all over the place, but they are, in fact, kind of all intertwined if you think about it. Yeah, that's what I was kind of seeing. The meta-ness of this is really that these are all within the fabric or the tendons of this new reality that like it's almost like when you're doing this, do you ever like think about like what if there was no pandemic? Would it would have been a similar trajectory or do you feel like this is as a result? of the pandemic more than anything else? I would say so. I think it, it, they really would be the same. Maybe they may not be as extreme. Maybe they wouldn't have manifested as quickly. But the the phrase has been for the last year in regards to kind of culture and trends that while it spawned some new behaviors, predominantly it's just accelerated what's already been in existence or what's been beneath the surface. Oh, I love that. Yeah, that's that's that, that helps me understand it a lot better too because that's like the thing that, you know, it's, it's you've done the work. So now you know by just taking a look at like how many analyses are done and then you get to see that like it's sometimes that's the leap forwards you know like that's why it was called the roaring 20s is because it kind of like leaped forward temporarily with a bunch of different things it was the end of a war at the same time an end of a pandemic as people like push themselves into a new mental space and physical space as then they release from that how do you see the trends moving forward now just to give yourself a little bit of like premonition work (laughs) where do you see it evolving or do you see them splitting and becoming new yeah that's the million dollar question that's what every single (laughs) business under the sun wants to try to understand. I think they're going to continue to sustain. They're they're already so established and ingrained in our daily lives. They're not going anywhere. In regards to kind of that idea of, well, what comes next and what do our 20s look like? There are some trends that I think a lot of these firms didn't pick up on. And I consider those the overlooked ones. And the the predominant one was this idea of finding faith. I think post-pandemic, we're looking for a shoulder to lean on. I mean, we've been quite literally isolated in our homes for an entire year. And as a consequence of that, we're grasping onto any sense of community, whether that works for us or works for democracy or not. And we could wade into the waters of QAnon or not, but I think there's there's something to be said about that relative to the appeal of something like Peloton or veganism or, I don't know, crystals or celestial objects, right? I think they're all one and the same. I mean, conspiracies at the end of the day is just finding some sense of, of loyalty or spirit or connection or sense making. And I think that perhaps is the largest overlooked trend or the largest kind of cultural shift that is going to sustain or rather thrive post pandemic or rather in, in the years to come. Yeah. Let me use that as a segue into your momfluencers piece, because I think you answered that a bit in there when you're talking about community and connection and what happens inside of these digital spaces, or these digital communities and what it does to the existence of somebody who's already in a space and taking advantage of it. So an influencer is somebody who who likely has grown into that position. It's somebody who not ma- mastered the platform, but someone who has been able to kind of interact with it in a way that gives them clout or ability to influence other people's decisions. But they're very lonely. They don't really 
communicate with others unless they find their community. So you wrote this really, really great piece, which I think was really important, especially given now and given the time. And it's not only just under the idea of the momfluencer aesthetic, but also like the aesthetic of QAnon or the aesthetic of Instagram. So you mentioned in your in the previous bit about how we had those slideshows on Instagram and how there's a very specific shareable aesthetic. Can you explain what that aesthetic does and how that creates like or potentially creates some sort of community that onboards? Yeah. So for a little bit of context in terms of the mom influencers, so there's the larger influencer movement, whether that be fitness, mm-hmm. beauty, fashion, influencers online who are pushing products. There's a subcategory of those influencers targeting other moms. And what's really, really, really interesting about these mom influencers are that they're kind of bucking the status quo or are immune to the larger aesthetic trend that's happening across social media, which is while other influencers are leaning into kind of the lo-fi or the nitty gritty or the vulnerable or the exposed um, or rather the overexposed, mom influencers aren't really leaning into that. Instead, they're kind of grasping onto what's been working for them, which is the hyper-polished, the manicured, the filtered, the clean, the centered, like this very, very, very pristine aesthetic. And as a result, it's become a bit of a gateway for any and everything. Because when other moms or followers look up to these mom influencers, there's a brand and that brand is trustworthy. And that brand is owned by another mom. So when mom influencers make a name by posturing themselves on a pedestal, um, such as selling any and everything, they construct this hierarchy. And it's very easy to sell uh, anything under the sun, including QAnon. And we've seen a number of posts come out over the last year of seemingly innocent stay-at-home moms lean into these Instagram slideshows that are speaking about Epstein or anti-masking. And as a result, other moms are completely bought in. Yeah. A few years ago, so I always tell, I told Josh or this earlier. It's like great talking to you because like you, we're like running the same track of like research, but we, it's like so interesting to hear the different perspectives. A few years back, I did, uh, I was teaching an influencers class. Uh, I was teaching a, a course on uh, how to become an Instagram influencer and several did. They, they're actually food bloggers now, which is kind of awesome. But during that time, you have to kind of give an example of like what are influencers. And so I was always like, and I wasn't picking on mom influencers, but I was basically saying there is a specific aesthetic that they've bought into. And at the time, and I don't remember what year it was at this point, because time is just doesn't make sense anymore. But there was a point where it was like hustle her hustler. Like it was like a side hustle of the moms. And then mommy bloggers were very interesting because I was pointing out that like a lot of the mommy bloggers, and again, this is, this is, this is an industry and this is a a job for some, but it's also some exploited as a grift. And inside that grift is the exploitation of their own children. They use them as prop inside of this. And so I, a lot of times, as you know, like conspiracy community inside of like these rabbit hole places is oftentimes projection or fear. And we don't really take into account that the aesthetic is a manifestation sometimes of that fear. And it's like, it's presented in pastel colors and flat text and Helvetica font, but it's really a way of saying everything's going to be fine. (laughs) And it's like, but things aren't fine because no one's giving them the objective view. They're only inside their insular community. And so I think that's in a weird way, like the accidental role. And you write, momfluencers play a different role in cultural than conventional influencers. While all are tasked with pushing products, momfluencers sell something more profound a complete idolistic fantasy. Then you're right. Momfluencers are porn. 50 shades of there's no fucking way. (laughs) And what's great about that is, as you say, it's escapism, a dream, a performance, unattainable, unrealistic, 
yet still aspirational. And I think that's important, the aspirational, because just like influencers, there's this mindset that I can do this too. So when you see this, like, do you see this metastasizing over like the 20s? Or is this something that's going to level out and plateau? I think this is a complete tension. And it's just going to get more radical on both sides in that you have one camp who is just looking up to these beautiful fit moms living in giant houses and super cute kids. And they're looking at that thinking, I still want that. I, I, I want that life. I want that to be me. What can I do to get into that position? Um, whether that be lifestyle or just influencer themselves. But then you have this other camp on the other hand, which is looking at this thinking, there's no, like, what is this? Like, this is not reality. This is not real life. How is she feeding them? How is she feeding herself? How, how is she still that beautiful? I'm out. Screw this. I want nothing to do with this. Let's burn this thing down. And I think both can coexist. And it's going to be fascinating how both of those coexist, kind of still viewing this same piece of material. And both coexist looking at the same piece of material. And I like that you said the word tension because I look from the male entrepreneur influencer side and how they're leveraging aspirational labor, which is in itself a deeply feminist issue, aspirational labor. But I look at someone like Gary Vaynerchuk, who preaches hustle porn and like 18 hour days and you're going to grind and you're going to make it. And if you don't, then it's your fault. And also at the same time, just be happy. But the reality is working 18 hour days and that model ends up leading you to paying 10 to $15,000 for his 4D deep dives. And then he ends up selling hustle shirts and that's a total grift and it's like the commodification of aspirational male labor or just entrepreneur labor and it's like aren't these two of the same side where you just end up finding okay it's either I end up aspiring to this false idea of crystals or conspiracy thinking or community within that or I end up completely indoctrinated into a fantasy of uh, liberation or salvation from uh, working myself to death. I have no nothing to add. That's spot on. I mean, it's it's spot on. But I guess to, to zoom out a little bit, in, in terms of just culture itself, we see these tensions all over the place. I mean, two quick examples. There's one of new sobriety. We're seeing people completely reject uh, drugs and alcohol. There are juice bars popping up, or there were juice bars popping up pre-pandemic, where you go, you listen to music, you dance, but the cocktails are just made of juices. But also at the same time, you have the decriminalization of mushrooms, and you have complete psychedelic experiences becoming mainstream. Both of those things can exist. The other example is you have the LGBT community completely growing, completely expansive, uh, rejecting any sense of binary, celebrating fluidity, but also at the same time, you see the, the complete explosion and rise of gender reveal parties where people are doubling down on the concept of gender and, and making it pink and blue. So all throughout culture, there are all these examples where two competing, conflicting ideas go up against one another. Sometimes they touch, sometimes they don't, but that's what makes culture culture. Yeah, that's what we lose grip of sometimes is that culture itself is such is fluid. People like to think of it as an object, so like an ocean or a river, like it flows or it's big and it's not. It's everything all at once. It's where the water is in between the sand particles. Like that's where culture is. It's like the sand and the water are together. They're an ecosystem. And it's easy, very easy to reduce it down to something that is explainable, which is what we have to do because otherwise the world is just chaos. But it, it's very interesting that, like I said, let's like bring it back to your meta reports. It's like there's something beyond that. There's something beyond that 
that thing, which is a place where we can't sometimes use language. We have to use like emotions. I think what people have to get comfortable with is that we are moving. There's such a complexity in everything that's going on at this point that in order to make do sense making, as as you would bring to this too, is like to bring sense making to this is like a responsibility. It's a genuine need for us to do that because if we don't, someone else makes sense for us. And I think that's a problem. It's sort of like when you come across those the places where lightning has struck sand and it's become glass. It's like it, you, somebody may pick it up and be like, look at this glass I found, but not realizing that it was just sand. You know, so it's like somebody else makes that meaning and we have to kind of like get a grip on it because it's not in sense of like, oh, well, the, everything will get out of control if we don't. But it, it helps us as, as a generalized culture kind of keep it together because humans have survived this long because of communication being the first and foremost, then our tools, but our ability to invent culture, invent, create, fictionalize, you know, it's like that is what keeps us in these spaces. So this is, it's, it, I think what we're looking at a very interesting 2020s. And I think these, these points you're making are really important because like we're at this potentially at a precipice of this tension, you know, like where there's a tension that can flow either way. And I always like look at it as like, I keep using geology references here because it's like where, where I come from, but like, like plate tectonics, like one's on top of the other and one's either subsiding under or one's growing over, but it's still part of the big, you know, mm-hmm. it's part of the whole. 100%. I would say that tectonic shift metaphor is incredibly accurate, but kind of reveals our fatal flaw, if you will. If we witnessed anything, it's that we're not good with competing ideas. The cognitive dissonance is so dizzying for so many people. We're not great at the messy. We're not great at the big picture. If we've seen anything. It's my way or no way. It's my truth. It's my reality. And for us to thrive, whether, I mean, pick your avenue or your lane, but for us to thrive, we need to acknowledge that tectonic plate. We need to acknowledge the tension and just live with that. That's okay. That's allowed to exist. But that radicalization or that fight for one plate over another, I mean, that's where we get into so much trouble. Yeah. So I want to switch now to my favorite topic, uh, memes. (laughs) You had this interview with Don Caldwell of Know Your Meme, and you wrote this piece uh, for your zine, why we need the new Rosetta Stone for Gen Z with possibly the best header image I've seen on an article in quite some time. <laughs> it's, it, it is it, in and of itself requires multiple levels of understanding memes just to kind of get that one. So it, it, I thank you for the effort you put into just making that a catch. I mean, this is where like our, our beat too, like is meme literacies. And I was complimenting you before. So I'll compliment you here uh, on the recording that what I think you did really well here. And what I appreciate your work in is your knowledge of your audience and who you're talking to about this. This subject is important. So I'll preface the subject. The subject is that memes don't mean what they think we mean. And it's important for us to start understanding that there's meta text that comes from memes that requires a Rosetta Stone. And so I've never used that term. I wrote, I co-authored the first peer-reviewed article on Pepe the Frog I told you about once. And in it covers a lot of what you've said here, including emojis. We use the emoji framework as our Rosetta Stone. So emojis is a good entry point because emojis are changing. You may use one at a certain given time, but that meaning can change based on cultural waves themselves. So at the current moment, a smile may mean one thing, but years from now could take place somewhere else. Your translation of that using the Rosetta Stone is incredible because hieroglyphics were an unknown language for almost 2000 years, people had no idea what they meant. 
They were just logarithmic iconography. They may as well have been emojis and they couldn't be translated unless that device was found. And that device was found in Rosetta. And all of a sudden, it, just by giving us the Greek version, ancient Greek and the hieroglyphics, we're like, oh, these were, this is language. And I think what you're, what you're getting at, and I'm going to give you space to explain this, is I think what you're getting at in the same piece here is that seeing is not the language of, of memes or any of this. It's beyond the seeing. What your eyes interpret is not its meaning beyond that. So can you go into a bit of like what what you say when you say this quote if we define language fluency as one's proficiency to read write and speak then there's a new need for the rosetta stone of the digital age the entire motivation for this piece was i was asked to comment on uh, the interpretation or the changing interpretations of emoji for gen z and i was explaining how one smiley changed to another and then in just kind of writing my own words i recognized like wow, I have knowledge that not a lot of people have access to. And that's not fair. That's not right. Because when we consider the Rosetta Stone, right, there's the democratization of what this thing means. And by no means should I be the sole bearer of this information. Like What I'm sharing with you should be known for everyone and anyone. And I found this very, very, very problematic, particularly for Gen Z, in that when we look at how they're using these emojis, or when we're looking at the, the means in which they're using, right, there's such referential exercise if, if that even makes sense going on, where you almost get lost. And for anyone on the outside, I mean, with culture moving so uh, rapidly, I mean, once you're off, like, I mean, you're off, like, there's no way for you to catch back up. It's very, very, very difficult. In, in my take, at least from my perspective, we're reaching this precipice of if you're not on board, you're, you're completely lost. And I found it concerning even more because... For those who are trying to get people on board, they're simply throwing at-home computers or laptops or faster broadband at home, which is, yes, helpful. But for someone on the outskirts of this culture, a simple website, or rather a simple computer, is not going to help them or access to a website. It's not going to help them. They, they have to be fully, and I don't want to use this word, but like fully indoctrinated into the, the, the culture unless, I mean, everything is gibberish. <laughs> Yeah, with the the framework we use, uh, the the paper. See, again, the reason why I want to bring up this piece is because when I when we co-wrote the article for Journal of Cultural Politics, it's exclusive text. Academic text is exclusive. It's it's written in a language that's very very difficult to read for the public. And of course, worst part of it, a whole thing is not only is it exclusive in its language, but it's exclusive in its paywall. You have to literally pay to read the article. So of course, if if anybody wants it, I'm glad to share it. But in that piece is I used the Tiananmen Square Tank Man as my example of what it means to be culturally uh, metatextual. And the reason for that is that Tank Man as an image can be broken down to its constituent elements, which is easy. A tiny object facing large objects. And uh, that alone is a dangerous image because when you think about that, regardless of its context, which is its third layer, and then its fourth layer being reality, sort of like the invert of Baudrillard's phases of the image, the reality of it says one thing, but when you remove it from its reality and make it a reference and then remove it again from a reference to that reference, eventually you just get power, those who have and those who do not have. And that type of thing needs to be given in terms of how language itself is just articulated or generalized or even created in the first place. And I, I just want to point out one thing you wrote here, this point one that I think is more, I don't think I've written this. So I think this is really important that you pointed out. A meme contains more emotional information than text. That is amazing. That is, I think, what's lost among people who approach memes or interact with memes is that they don't realize what they're looking at is a manifestation of emotion. So how, in your words, do you tell somebody to approach a meme knowing that? 
It's so complicated in that, I mean, talk about attention, right? If a meme is meant to be just a natural way of expression, kind of that question gets at this idea that now it's becoming premeditated or now that there's so much thought going into it, which opens such a can of worms. I mean, the the first time that I thought about this, I was looking at, it was a gif of uh, Vince Vaughn and Wedding Crashers. And it was like, time to party. And it's like this very overused gif. Um, it's like always preloaded in any of the gif search engines. And the, the time to party gif could really mean anything in that it's the acceptance of something or it could be, hey, let's go. Like it, There are so many use cases of it. And I'm circling around this idea. The idea of using Vince Vaughn spoke so much than just, hey, let's go or yes, I agree. Like his actual actions of him eating cake or the, the font itself or just the idea of Wedding Crashers, a classic movie, there were so many layers to Vince Vaughn that it opened kind of the doors of possibilities of what you actually wanted to say. And by emotion, that was the closest word I could get to of just cultural data. Like there was so much to unpack in regards to emotion that it's beyond words, right? It's a million billion words, if you will, if a picture is worth a thousand. And when I think of Vince Vaughn, we get into this weird exercise, or at least I've noticed I get into this weird exercise of when I use a meme, it becomes so premeditated. And then I'm thinking, which best encapsulates what I'm feeling? But two, how will the recipient interpret this thing? Do they also like wedding crashers? Or would it be appropriate if I use a meme's character with a different race or a different gender? And how would that be interpreted? So when I say, or kind of to go back to your question, I think there's a, a kind of a buyer beware mentality in terms of determining which piece of media you want to use, um, which I think is important. But also at the same time, this is all just meant to be natural. We shouldn't be overthinking this by any means. Yeah. I mean, that's the toughest part here. It's like there's an intentionality to meme sharing and meme making that I think Josh and I did meme literacy workshops last summer. And one of the things we talked about that works on this is dog whistles. And dog whistles are multi-referential. So many multi-references that you, you actually mention it like in the fourth one. It's, I'm not saying it, we are, or I'm not saying it, they are. It's the ability to obfuscate its ownership at the same time as it's transferring information from one person to another, which makes it more complicated than any words can do. Because it's like there was probably noises or grunts or subsonic or extra language tactics that previous humans used or proto humans that may have carried this type of information. But now in our ultra information present, memes carry all of that in almost the most silent and loudest method possible. There's they're noisy. A meme is noisy. I, I like to use the phrase a meme is decadent. You know, it's like there's there's so much going on. Like when you bite into a cake that's like chocolate on chocolate with layers and you're just like, whoa, that's rich. Your, your taste buds can't really understand how there's like salt and sweet happening at the same time. That's a meme. But I think, and I, here's a question for you is like, do you think people are exhausted? Like, do you think this is exhausting? Because like, sure, it's one thing to have cake, but you definitely can't eat the whole cake. <laughs> you know, it's like, is trying to interpret memes, is it, it's not, I mean, I'm asking you this seriously because I battle, battle with this all the time. Is it futile to present meme literacies or do you think this is like something we have, we can't stop doing? We have to keep pushing for this. I've never thought about that until now. And I love, love, love that question. I adore that question. I've always been in the camp of like, hey, an image is so much faster to summon or to interpret than words. So therefore, memes have such staying power. But to your point, they are so heavy. They are such, I mean, they're drenched in information. And yeah, that that is taxing to a certain extent. And I've never thought we would burn out from memes unless we kind of view it in that sense. The one case that I think is important 
to bring up in this conversation regarding the decadence of memes are mental health memes in particular. And mental health memes caught my eye in that so many of them were drawing upon childhood cartoons, whether that be SpongeBob or Arthur or DW or Kermit, that using a mental health meme was a way to almost protect yourself in that, I mean, what you had brought up. I'm not saying it, SpongeBob is, or I'm not saying it, anyone who shares this meme is saying it, right? There's power in numbers, but also too, it's a way to kind of distance yourself from what you're actually feeling. And I, I found that so many people love these memes because it's such such a way to protect yourself while also being vulnerable and, and talking about these very, very, very serious, um, still taboo sensations or, or, or feelings. And circling back to the, the staying power, I think for as long as they continue to work for us or there's a net benefit, I think we'll continue to do that extra lifting. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, uh, I have to agree with you. I and mean, that, that extra lift has to be done until we get some sort of acknowledgement that this means something that isn't just jokes, that it's like an actual object's pregnant with meaning. You know, it's like they, once that serious nature is, is there, then I think we'll achieve a beginning, uh, not a media literacy, but a, 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 an ability to actually look at things and actually take the time to say, okay, this might be more serious than I had originally intended or something I more was more interested in. And there's something that holds more meaning to me than something that I could just uh, swipe by or swipe up past. And so I actually want to shift gears just slightly now to, to something you've been working on and you published on. And I don't know much about uh, jo- this is Josh's field. So I'm, I'm going to allow him to jump in here a little bit. But I want to hear, I think you're, I find you fascinating in this because spending off memes means that we have to understand time differently. We have to understand time as a collapsed moment that all of it exists all at once in one specific place. And it messes with us because we're so oversaturated and so overwhelmed with time as it is. And time, we're literally in March, but to me, it's still last March, the exact same moment. So we're like figuring out that time is flat circle. And, and that true detective line is like accidentally real. But now inside of that, we have people who are enabling or utilizing time as a motivation for new innovation. And David Dobrik's app that you write about, Dispo, is pretty interesting because it does exploit the idea of time. Can you explain, because this is actually for me too, because I actually don't know enough about this. Can you explain Dispo and how it operates and what it means to how we're going to start interacting with this type of app in the future? Yeah, so it's a new camera app. It's actually been around, but what's new about it is that it's um, gotten recent funding, it's been redesigned, and there's a new social element. But how it works is it's very much like a disposable camera where you see the back of the disposable camera on your phone and there's a very, very, very tiny viewfinder and you can't really frame anything perfectly. And the point is for you to just take a photo and once that photo is taken, you don't get to look at it. You don't get to look at it until the next morning. So it's designed in such a way for you to live in the moment, much like you would use a disposable camera. And there's other social components where you could collaborate or share your captured photos and a shared album, if you will. It's designed in such a way where it bucks the trend of people overthinking the ways in which they're capturing their moment and how they share it with others. It's almost framed or branded in hey, this is a photo from the night before, much like the hangover credits, and everything is kind of free living, I don't really care. And people are obsessed. They love it. And all the photos which come out are filtered so they look like they're a disposal camera. It's grainy, it's lo-fi, there's some overexposed bits, there's some underexposed bits, and it seems as if you don't care and all that work is done for you. You don't have to edit your photos. It's taken, you think about it later, and then it gets shared, and it is what it is. There's no further manipulation. 
What's interesting to me is that you were quoted in Taylor Lorenz's 2019 piece, The Instagram Aesthetic is Over in the Atlantic. And you speak about the types of aesthetics that influencers were using in 2019 and continue to use today. And then comes along a new app that retrieves some of the physical aspects of photography in the disposable camera. But now we're ending up with an aesthetic very similar to the original Instagram aesthetic. And we're kind of ending up at the same place that we started, but built upon a foundation that you write, uh, while the intent is clear and Dispo removes much of the burden which comes with other social apps by leaning into delayed gratification, it's still built upon some questionable architecture, VC money, FOMO filtering, following follower hierarchies, metrics tracking photos taken, streaks, and elusive exclusivity remain. So where is the humanness in Dispo app? Is it the artificial anticipation that builds? Is it digital trying to recreate the intimacies of a tendency that humans tend to create as more authentic with the old? Where are you seeing the human connection and the draw to this? Or do you feel like it's more of the addictive kind of casino style dopamine hits that we're all too used to with VC funded social media platforms? That's the question. That is the question. We we need to applaud the effort, right? It's there. We're, we're getting closer and closer, but that human element is, that's deep within, that's hidden. That's, that's questionable if it even thrives in this app. Something I want to note, and it, it really bugged me, and I'm, I'm glad that I have a channel to, to share it, but there was a comment, or people continue to comment, that, oh, it's so great that Dispo, um, there's no filters. And I thought, what are you talking about? The entire thing is a filter. You're just not applying it. And people are are mistaking the act of editing their photos with the application of a filter. I mean, the entire thing is still filtered. It makes it look a certain way. It's completely unnatural. That's not a, a pure or close representation of what your phone is capturing, right? There's a layer in between it. Yet for many people, it feels as if it's more true than what it actually is. And that to me blows my mind. There was another quote along the same lines of, well, if you look back at Hipstamatic or the original Instagram filters, those were good ones. And um, they made your photo look good, but now dispose filters make your photo look bad. And like, it's, it's the same thing, right? It's still manipulation. It, the, I mean, the original Instagram filters still added grain. They still added light leaks, arguably even more so. So it's hard to believe why those filters are better or worse. And I think, again, people are just, they're, they're mistaking their effort of the application of filters with, with the filter itself. And they're associating a nostalgia for a better past or a better perceived past for better. Maybe it's the 2010 kind of cultural moment that they're longing for more than the Nashville filter. But to me, when I hear, okay, those original filters were better and then we're replicating the same aesthetic in 2021 for a new app, to me, I start to think about, well, if we're going to say that one thing is better than the other, and you quote Grafton Tanner in this, well, why are we associating an app as better or worse when the very Instagram aesthetic itself, from the Polaroid camera to Billabong font to everything about the app, from filters that diminish quality of digital photos, which are perceived to be less authentic because they're associated with the digital rather than the physical true quality of a Polaroid photo. When I, when I hear better or worse, to me, we lose the argument. And I wonder about the purpose of trying to artificially recreate the thing that we already had in the first place. 
but now we're just having it sold back to us. And do you feel that Dispo can truly leverage this particular moment where folks are wanting to recreate a past to not just engender those feelings, but make progressive strides? Or is this just the same thing? We have to remain optimistic. We really do. At least I want to. Um, when I spoke with with Tanner, I mean, we where we net out with the conversation was the the who quote meet the new boss, same as the old boss. And are we just witnessing the same boss with this new VC backed social media app that, that adds filters to your photos. And if anything, there's still exclusivity to it. There's, there are, at least there was still an invite appeal. Um, there are still usernames. There are still cryptic streaks. There are still notifications. There are still filters. And yeah, I mean, I, I again, I think we're stepping to the right direction. There is uh, delayed gratification. There are less um, exploitative practices involved here. For, for us to think that this is completely designed with every single flaw of ours in mind and protects us against that, I, I mean, I don't know if that's the case. But again, we have to remain optimistic. Yeah, I, I have to say that's, I think that's the most, that's the biggest takeaway for me too. I think your points are well taken, but I think there is the option. It's very easy for us to be cynical about this and like look at it and it's very like dark manner and like introverted or insular or even regressive. But you're right. Optimism is like what we have and we have to, because I think if we're not optimistic, I think that leaves us in this helpless place where I think even if Dobrik's app recalls a former version or is inspired by a, a previous thing, its innovation does present us with something that's like fun or new, you know? And I think that's something that in this last year, I mean, that's the thing that we have to use more than anything. It's like, remember that we could still innovate even if we're using previous tools. It doesn't mean we're creating recursive elements. It just means that we're we're thinking differently in, an, in, in a space that does work. I mean, it works. So why aren't we working with what works? So I, I appreciate your, your optimistic quote. It's difficult. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, it's difficult to write. I think, I think it's easier. It's way easier to be cynical. I think it's just way easier to do things that don't have to inspire forward progress. And optimism is hard. It, it isn't the easy road, but it is the road that has kept humans from going extinct. And right now we're in a tech heavy, language heavy, image heavy environment. But let's be optimistic because we we made it here and we're definitely not stopping here. <laughs> Matt, let's leave with one thing and one plug. What do you feel most optimistic about moving forward and where can people keep up with you? Yeah, so I'm most optimistic in regards to the democratization of technology to help us with our own mental health. Um, we've seen a complete normalization with apps like Headspace or Calm. We've seen celebrities moving into that space as well. Long overdue, but I'm glad that, that it's getting the attention in which it deserves. Um, and then in terms of uh, where people can keep up, I've recently launched a zine where I'm publishing all my work across the internet. It is, uh, the URL is uh, Z-I-N-E dot K-L-E-I-N K-L-E-I-N, K-L-E-I-N.com. So zine.kleinkleinkline.com. Um, and I'll be sharing uh, future pieces there. Thank you so much. Really, we appreciate your time here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to Matt for joining us on the Digital Void podcast. To learn more about Digital Void and to find show notes of today's episode and all previous conversations, you can visit us on the web at digitalvoid.media. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll be back next week.